everybody, John Ramstead here with Sandra Crawford Williamson, and, and today uh, we have a really uh, unique guest, don't we, Sandra? Uh, we've interviewed so many amazing people, uh, but we have today we have Court Dial. Um, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's a performance coach, um, but there was just something just incredibly special about Court, wasn't there, Sandra? Yeah, I mean, he is definitely, um, I mean, John, we've done this a long time and he uh, he blew us away. I mean, this is, he's phenomenal. He's humble, he's gracious, he's wise. He has these stories and just real life experiences that have made him the person, you know, he is. And I mean, he's worked with top corporations in the world and yet he is just so humble and down to earth. Uh, and I, I know everybody out there listening is going to be just hugely impacted by what he has to say. I know I was. Yeah. So, so everybody, Court starts this interview, which we're about to just roll for you, with one of the most personal stories that, that left both Sandra and I speechless. And he calls it his watershed moment. It was out of this story that his entire philosophy about that he has brought into the world. Um, and, and what you're going to hear also during this conversation is one of the most powerful ways. Everybody talks about kind of the why, you know, why we need, you know, to kind of connect with our calling and, 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 and purposeful work and what we should be doing. And Court goes through, because of this story and everything that's developed, how to do that. So without any, without any further ado, Here's our interview with Court Dial, and we would love to hear your comments at the end on our Facebook group. And please, if you like this, share it with a friend, uh, subscribe, uh, you know, just tell one person about this. This is an interview that I think you're going to want to forward to somebody that you know. All right, everybody, uh, welcome to Court Dial here on the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Court, how are you doing this morning? Very good. How are you, John? I'm doing great, and uh, you and I, boy, uh, I think I got sick once, you got sick once, and so like, uh, it's been about six, seven months kind of in the works to to find some time to bring you on the podcast, so I think the timing is perfect, and I'm so glad you're here, uh, and we're going to be talking about this whole concept uh, and kind of your, your philosophy about uh, moving from a heretic to a hero, aren't we, today? Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Now, Sandra, um, I know you've done uh, th this kind of this whole area of just kind of being, uh, you know, somebody with a different opinion, somebody that's kind of out there with, with different ideas. Now, that's something you, you've embraced in your career, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, I was always sort of the <laughs> the weirdo, <laughs> you know, I had a huge sense of justice and always stood up for what was right, even when it wasn't popular. And so, yeah, I was probably called a heretic many times in business, although, you know, they probably had other nicknames for me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just always I was raised by a really strong dad who was very courageous and just taught me the, you know, stick to your beliefs, even when it's not popular or when you don't have any friends because of it. And so I took that into the business world and um, you know, I, I couldn't change who I was. Right. And so my entire career has kind of been a, a reflection of court's philosophy. So it's, it's been really neat to, um, go through a lot of his information and as, you know, as much as the book as I could get my hands on and, and some other podcasts and things. And it's, it's just a great story, but you know, court, I, I love hearing, why you adopted that philosophy, you know, that being sticking to your guns, being the standout, you know, I love the, the way you put it, which is, you know, the greatest heroes have always been heretics, brave individuals who challenge the status quo. And uh, you talk a lot about your inner voice, you know, your inner voice is saying, hey, this isn't right. Um, you have to stick up for people and, and that you are, if you embrace your humanity, that that's when you can be in what you call an all in leader. But what I really love about your story, and I know, um, some people out there may have heard it already, but you have what you call the watershed moment of your life when you were very young and starting out in the, the chemical 
chemical business. Do you mind jumping in on that? Foggy morning on the East Coast chemical plant, and you're the supervisor of the chemical plant, and um, you're sort of taking a walk back from the docks, and can you take it from there and tell us what happens? Sure, I'd be happy to. I was actually one of the supervisors in the plant, Mm -hmm. and I would say uh, I was about a year into my professional career out of college, and I would describe myself as cocky and confident, and um, was sitting out watching the tall ships come into Philadelphia. It's a beautiful thing they do every year, and alone on the dock in a very peaceful moment, thinking about, you know, how successful I am, and just feeling totally content, and and then my radio cracked, and at I answered the radio, and uh, at the other end was a gentleman named uh, Tim, who was the, at those days, called the first aider. Today, we call them EMTs at the plant. And he said, Court, uh, come down to the contractor fabrication area. And I said, what's the problem? He said, just get here as soon as you can. And all that feeling of contentment and confidence just flowed out of my body, and I just became totally filled with dread and fear because I knew something bad had happened. So it was about a 15-minute walk back to the contractor uh, area and very foggy that day. I could barely see in front of my face, so I had to walk very slowly. It's afraid I was going to trip over something or run into something. But as I walked through the facility, people were coming out of the doors on the second level, which all the control rooms are on the second level and watching me walk by. And I couldn't see their faces. I could just see a silhouette through the, the silhouettes through the fog. And it was like I was a one, one man, one person parade. And that even got me even more concerned. And then about halfway there, I started hearing this sound. And it was a sound I'd never heard before. I, I would describe it as if you put a, a choir record on and then uh, were changing the speed on the record player. But I had no clue what it was. I just knew it wasn't something normal in the plant. It wasn't a piece of equipment that was making that noise. And it, that even scared me more. You know, what is that noise? And then as I got probably uh, several hundred yards away, I started to see a silhouette. And I and it was a shape I knew didn't exist down at that area of the plant. So I'm what the heck is that shape? What is that sound? And by the time I uh, got even closer, my I could feel my heart about beating out of my chest. And I actually started running, even though it was uh, forbidden in the plant to do that. And I realized, oh, my goodness, it's a crane. And I knew the power lines that fed the plant um, uh, we're, we're right there. And I knew at that moment pretty much that we had hit a, a, one of the main power lines with a crane. And that really got me terrified. And, and then as I ran up to the scene and got the, clock, the fog cleared, I realized uh, what that mound was or what that shape was. It was about 60 men all on their knees uh, in a big circle. And uh, the sound was them crying and praying. And as I walked up to this circle of men, they all sort of parted to let me through because they're contractors. I'm I'm a company person. I got my big logo on my helmet. And so they parted to let me through. And as I got to the center, I saw this man. He was probably close to 60 with silver hair. I'll never forget his face. Beautiful blue eyes. And he's looking up at the sky and all of his hands, his hands and his feet are up in the air like he's like this will sound strange, but one of my favorite parts of Christmas was my mother always allowed me to put the baby Jesus in the in the uh, nativity scene. Mm. And typically, that's what I thought. He looks like the baby Jesus in that nativity scene I grew up with. And he was looking up at the sky, a beautiful uh, uh, day that day, and he kept saying over and over, but I, I don't feel any pain. I don't, I don't feel any pain. And then I noticed Tom was right next to him, and he not- he waved for me to come around to him. And as I started walking around that man, I that's when I realized his hands and feet had basically been blown off by the electricity. 
And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of blood, but there was a whole lot of fluids leaking, sort of out of oozing out of all of his uh, hands and feet. And Tom grabbed me and and pulled me down by my jacket. Uh, Court, this is Harry. Uh, He's not going to make it. He's going into shock. He's in severe shock. I'm going to go get the ambulance. You you comfort him as much as you can. And he handed me his arm as if I was to take his hand. And I grabbed what was left of his hand. And the fluid was oozing all over me. And we all sat there and prayed and cried. And and, um, Harry just kept looking up at the sky over and over saying, I don't feel any pain. And ultimately, he passed out. And to be honest, I don't remember anything from that moment until Sometime later, I woke up in the showers in the locker room at the plant, and Tom was uh, undressing me. Um, and I sort of, he'd just taken my shirt off, and I drew back and I grabbed my shirt and said, What the heck are you doing? And when he grabbed my shirt, my sleeve was soaking wet and cold, and I sort of recoiled and threw it away from me. And I said, And what is that? What is that on my shirt? And uh, Tom said, Court, you need to take a shower. You need to get undressed, take a shower. There's an important meeting you have to attend. And I said, but what about Harry? And he said, Harry didn't make it. He was pronounced dead on arrival. And I said, you mean we killed a man? And he said, yes, we killed a man. Now, now get in that shower and get dressed. There's an important meeting. And I really don't remember much after that other than waking up in the meeting. And I assume that Tom helped me get to the meeting Uh, and the meeting was called by the plant manager. And this was, I later on, I realized, or I believe he called this meeting primarily for me. Um, but he had all of the supervision in a room around this huge table, a conference room table. And he sat at the head. There's probably about maybe a dozen or more of us in there. And before he arrived, Everyone was blaming each other, and a fistfight actually uh, broke out, and the plant manager had to come in and break it up and told us all to get in our seats. And um, he wrote on the wall a question, and it was, how did we kill this man? And he put the chalk down, and he turned to us, and he said, gentlemen, he said, I'm saying gentlemen because there were no women in the room. He said, gentlemen. We're not leaving till I get a sufficient, satisfactory answer to that question. And here's the process we're going to use. We're going to go counterclockwise. And each of you is going to give me your answer. And we're going to do that until I get the answer that satisfies me and that I will feel comfortable telling this man's family how we killed this man. And so I was uh, to his left. So I was one of the last few last ones that would answer the question. And he'd go around the room and people would say, I don't know, or uh, he should be been following the procedures or uh, he doesn't work in my area. Uh, and every time it got to me, I asked to pass and he allowed that to happen several rounds. And about three hours into it, he finally let us take a break. Uh, but he warned us that don't think we're going home until we answer this question. So after the break, he asked the question again. It came all the way around to me, and I asked to pass, and he said, Court, I know you have an answer. And Tom leaned over to me and said, give the man your answer. He deserves it. And I got upset, and I said, I don't know how we killed him. I held the man's hand as he died. You know, what do you want from me? And uh, all looking back into avoiding the answer, all of this was just an act I was putting on to avoid the answer. And he he got quiet and sat there for a long time. And uh, ultimately, he sort of looked down at me in a very quiet, peaceful voice. It sort of reminded me of how my dad would talk to me sometimes. And he said, um, Court, how did we kill this man? And I didn't want to answer because I was ashamed of the answer. But because of the, his tone, I looked up at 
looked up at him and I said, we killed him because he's a contractor. And then I fell to the floor and started crying. And he had asked me questions like, um, did we do a safety review? Did we do a hazard analysis? Yes. Did we? But all we did in that hazard review, I could recall, is make sure the contractors didn't park with us. Make sure they didn't use our bathrooms. Make sure they didn't use our locker rooms. Make sure uh, we guarded them because they steal things. In other words, we didn't even talk about their and have any concern for their safety. And, and in that meeting, I realized I had put this man in a position because of my bigotry or ignorance or whatever you want to call it. I killed him because he was a contractor. And, and I feel the, the ground... Uh, sobbing and um but that was the watershed moment in my life and what the plant manager did was uh after they got me back up and got me settled down um he said gentlemen i have my answer you know please pray for harry uh, tonight and we'll see you tomorrow and uh i started to get up and leave and he asked me to stay and I was surprised because he said, Court, I knew you would be the one to answer this. And thank you for, and I said, I don't deserve any thanks. I should be put in jail. This is our number one responsibility here. And I failed at it miserably. And what really bothers me is I didn't have a, I didn't fail because of an innocent mistake. I failed because I'm an ignorant bigot. And he said, well, I want you to go home for two days. I don't want you to come into the plant and I want you to come back Friday, but I want you to spend those two days thinking about how you're going to reconcile this event and how you're going to use it to make yourself a better person and and all of that. And so I didn't even tell my wife. I acted like I was going to work for two days and just drove around town and and did what uh, what the plant manager asked me to do. And when we sat down, he said, uh, "So if you figured out what you what you've learned from this, and ultimately out of that conversation, the both the two of us made a commitment, which is uh, a commitments on my website today on the front page um, of one of my websites, and uh, it's I am committed to the health, safety, and well being of the men and women who design." build, operate, and maintain the world. And so that has really been my purpose in my life ever since that day. And I would say the other lesson I learned was that human beings are sacred beings. And I've developed what I call a thou relationship to human beings where at, at that point in my life, some people were thous and some people were its. And at that point in my life, contractors were its. And I learned that one must hold the thou relationship to really everything, everything, including this microphone that's in front of me right now. And and those are the two lessons I, I took from that. But unfortunately, a man had to die for me to learn those lessons. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with that detail, because I had never even heard it with that much detail. And I did not know the part that you didn't tell your wife that you went and pretended to go to work for two days. And uh, at what point did you share it with her? What had happened? Uh, when she read the book. Really? No kidding. No, I never, never shared it with anybody for the most part. A few times in my life when I was in front of a group and we were working on them and they were, I worked in safety quite a lot as a, as a coach and they were killing people. And I felt it was going to be useful to tell that story. I told that story, but I, I always broke down every time I told it. So, Wow. So not so. how many years later did you write the book? Wow. 30-some years later. Yeah. So 30-some years later, your wife reads the book. And what was her reaction? Uh, all of them said, I had no idea that these things had ever happened to you. And I said, yeah, I know. I keep those mm. things pretty private. Mm. So it wasn't easy for me to share that story in the book, but um, my editor uh, asked me to said that was critical for the book, so I put it in there. Wow, you know, Court, I can I can so relate to that. I think uh, you know what do you what made it so hard to you think 
kind of relive that or write about it now in what is, you know, something, you know, us, you know, as we're listening and we've all had stuff in our life can maybe take away from, you know, what you've maybe learned through this whole process yourself. Well, I've always felt that that conversation is sacred because a man died and I didn't want to ever use it, if you know what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Right. Use right. it for any other purpose other than something very honorable. Um, so I could have told it a lot of times and made it a standard part of uh, talks I give and things like that. But I, I didn't want it to be used that way. I thought it would be dishonoring Harry to do that. Did you ever meet Harry's family? No, the company would not allow us. Uh, the plant manager did, and he told me about that experience. And But they would not allow us, um, f- I guess, for legal reasons. I was called about a year and a half later, and I assume Harry's family was suing our company, and I was asked to give a deposition. Mm-hmm. And when I told the attorney, well, mine's very short. I killed the guy. I put him in a position no human being should ever been put in, and uh I was totally at fault, and um, he decided not to do my deposition. I can imagine. Mm. Wow. Okay, so now fast forward all these years later, 30-plus years later, you sit down to write the book, and you decide this is the time to talk about Harry. Um, I I know that had to be very difficult, but now that you have – our listeners out there hearing this and thinking, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great to, to, to learn from courts without having to go through something like that? So court, you have something now that you've developed called all in leadership and you talk about the humanity and leadership and taking care of one another and, and standing up for people um, can you tell us a little bit about your all-in leadership, like how you bring people along? Yes, all-in leadership is based on 30 years of my research and efforts and work. Basically, I've, I have been able to describe the most effective leaders. You know, I, I see three forms of leader. You can lead a, a, um, a, a business. That's one form of leader that I work with. And perfectly appropriate form of leader. You can lead a cause, but typically causes are against something, pro or against, and you're fighting with another group. I believe the most powerful leader is the leader who's leading a movement. Mm. And movements change the world. Movements uh, change the future. The future is different as a result of that leader. If he or she hadn't uh, envisioned this movement and, and created it and led it, uh, the future would have not not been the way it is. And so I often, when I go into coach, I, I talk about one of the concepts in all in leadership is uh, these former leaders, they play a big game. And you'll attract uh, more people if you play a big game. And so I try to help, you know, most business leaders will say, well, I'm not leading a movement here. I'm just leading a business. Well, let's talk about that. Um why are you really here? And ultimately, we, I help them figure out their real purpose and how they can put their faith, put their values into themselves, into this organization. And, of course, to produce the results. It's always about producing business results. But in service of what? And in too many businesses, they are willing to produce business results at the expense of people. And so the basic def when someone says what's an all in leader, I say it's a it's a someone who can produce extraordinary history making uh, results while caring for people. It's as simple as that. Mm. Well, and and the book Heretics to Heroes: A Memoir on Modern Leadership. It's been named the number one business book of 2016 by the Globe and Mail. It was honored with the Gold Nonfiction Book Award. It is, you know, top 10 on Amazon. 
Um, I mean, just ama- amazing results for this book because I think it hits home with people because you have these amazing personal stories, these real things that happen to you. And, you know, you say all along, hey, I'm just a, I'm just a normal broken human and I'm trying to do the best with what the Lord's given me. Exactly. And I was extremely fortunate when you read the book, you realize all the people and that's part of being on that path. I mentioned to you before we started recording the pollen path. When you're intentional and you're following the path you're called to follow, all kinds of people will show up in your life that you probably wouldn't even notice. But you're so intentional and so clear on who I am, what I stand for in this world. What am I really up to? in this day as uh, could be the last day of my life. Um, these people, you notice them and they, and you welcome them in. And in my book, there's a number of people who came into my life and mentored me and uh, developed me into the, I think a very effective coach I am today. Hey, Court, you mentioned, you know, the path that you are called to follow, you know, as, as you've walked on your different paths, how did you, um, create that awareness or or just clarity that you were on that that right path. I think there's a lot of people that are kind of searching, like or asking themselves that question: Am I on the path that I'm, you know, that I'm supposed to be on? Does that make sense? Yes, a lot of people I coach end up as is a from a business standpoint often ask me to coach them personally and one of the most common questions because they've read my book and uh, and heard me talk before is so how do i figure out what my path is Mm. um and there's a simple answer to that in my book i don't remember what chapter is but it's a chapter called uh, uh discovering and following your bliss and your bliss is what you experience when you're on the path, as I said earlier, uh, when we spoke, uh, the Indians say, when you're on your path, there's beauty before me, beauty for behind me, beauty to the left of me, beauty to the right of me. You just feel surrounded by beauty and blessed. And um, in that chapter, um, my son-in-law and daughter came to me early when he was teaching school and she was doing something else and asked me to coach them in that area. And I ultimately said yes, because typically you don't coach family members and people that close to you. But I had them do an exercise, which I have anyone who asks me this question. It's it's an exercise called uh, your, a day in your life of bliss. Uh, it could be a week or a day, but essentially I require you to sit down and write a movie script of that day. And it has to be so detailed I could make a play out of it or a movie. You have to describe the the scenery, the uh, where you're at, who you're with, what you're saying. You have to have all the dialogue. And it helps people get very clear on if I could live my life of bliss, um, this is what it would look like. And invariably, everyone's able to do it if they're willing to put in the effort. It takes several weeks to do this and several attempts and drafts because I'm always saying that's not good enough. I couldn't make a movie out of that. Got to get more detail. Why were you there? Give me all that. Um, ultimately, when they're done, I say, so that's it. That's that's your life of bliss. If you could live your life of bliss, that would be a typical day. Yes, it would. Okay, I got one question. Why aren't you living that life? And they'll come up with all these reasons of why they can't. And the most typical one is you can't make a living doing that. Mm. And that's what my son-in-law said you can't make a living because his day of bliss was doing nothing but working with young men and women uh, in baseball and teaching them all the things he that that his faith bring to his life he's a uh, a very devout and committed to his church and uh, and really uh, gives credit to his faith of saving him as a young man and, and getting him to where he is today and he wanted to do that, and he wanted to use baseball to do that. Well, long story short, he's had a business doing that for eight years and does very well. What was he doing before the uh, at the time that he wrote this, Court? Uh, he was teaching math, and he was miserable. Mm. Teaching math mm. in, in high school. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, Bob Buford calls it, um, what would you get up at four in the morning to do for free? 
Yeah. And and so it's kind of similar to what you're you're calling your you know your bliss, um, and you know many people want that, but most people don't know how to get there, right? Whether you call it your purpose, you know what's your significance, what's your fulfillment, um, you know people people want to know how to do that, and you know I I say first of all you have to discover it, right? Um, you know, in Romans 12, uh, 1 through 6, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what's God, what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And he goes on to say, um, you know, that we all belong to each other and we all have different gifts. You know, verse six, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And he goes on to say, if your gift is this, then do it. If your gift is this, then do it. If your gift is this, then do it. Um, you know, so what you're talking about is is biblical. Um, I, I you agree. Know, I, I like I like to say that if you want to be in the top 1%, you have to be willing to be, do, and say what the other 99% are unwilling to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and, and something you said earlier is we, before we hit record, um, you know, we were just talking about, or you, you made a statement that the most effective leaders, the people that you work with, are the ones that bring their whole selves into every part of their, their life, their faith their values, their passions. And, um, you know, I, I see, you know, just working with a lot of leaders myself too, I think a lot of people have these self-imposed kind of constraints in doing that. And I would love your kind of your thoughts on that area about how do we bring our, our whole self, the self that God created us to be into our, our role that we have in the world. Well, how I, I uh, help a leader get there is I typically have them do a version of that exercise I just described. I have them sit down and do a visionary exercise where I, I want you to go to the future and I want you, you're going to go visit uh, the same company. Uh, everything's the same there. Every molecule is the same. You're the same um, in the sense that you're there. What's different is they're performing at the level you want to perform at. So we've already talked about the level of performance this gentleman wants. So, for example, I was working with a, a general manager of deep water drilling for a company in the Gulf of Mexico. And his, he said, I would love to get where we deliver every will on budget on time, our first attempt. It's never been done in the history of business and in the Gulf. So, okay, fine. So I want you to go to that future. Sometimes they'll say it's a parallel universe. I want you to go there. Every molecule is the same, but they're performing at this level. I want you to spend some time there. And I take them through this exercise. It takes about 20 minutes. And they basically walk around in that future. And ultimately, I get to the point. Now I want you to look at uh, the John or the court that's there. What's different about him than you? What is it that he believes what is it that he says that he does? And and the best leaders have always been able to do that. They can go to the future, spend some time there, come back and articulate it in a way that's so compelling that others say, I want to be part of making that happen. And, and they become your follower. I want to help you realize that future. That whole process, when I work with a leader, typically takes three or four months, believe it or not. And that's uh, several meetings for several hours a month, but they have to go away and write it all down. And ultimately, that is the future they're going to put in front of their employees and declare and and start leading from, as I say, the best leaders lead from a future that they're inviting others to help them realize. They don't lead into a future. They're already there. They're there and already being and saying and doing it. They're inviting others to come in to do that. And when you say three to four months, is that three to four months, let's say you were doing that with me, Court, is that for me to really understand how I'm thinking, acting, showing up, what I'm doing, how I'm working with people? 
um, kind of that future self. So I'm really getting clarity on where I, I need to move toward. It's everything about the future. So in this gentleman's case, he got up in front of, you know, about 100 of his folks, his uh, most critical people in his organization of about a thousand. And he summoned them, called the summit. And on the day one, he did, he got up in front of him and says, I'm declaring a new future for this this business unit. And I want to mm-hmm. spend some time describing it to you. And mm-hmm. he was out there all by himself. I, I never, when I coach anybody, ever do any what I call the performing or up in front. I always help the leader play that role. And he got up and he spoke from his heart. And uh, he actually wrote the foreword for my book, this gentleman. And he not only described what it would be like. So today, as, as uh, oil, chemical, or oil and chemical workers, we're despised. Uh, we're seen as part of an evil business. Uh, the president at that time had just called them criminals uh, after the Horizon event. Mm. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon said, disaster in the Gulf yes. of Mexico, yeah. And uh, the president has shut down the Gulf, and I believe for good reason. And But he called them criminals, which I was disappointed in that language. But, but he said, we're not going to be criminals. We're going to be as respected as first responders. As the military, we play every bit of important mission to the protecting the freedom and the quality of life that we enjoy here. And people don't know that. But in this future, they're going to know that they're going to president can presidential candidates will come to our rigs and they'll speak from our rigs because you have to honor the the oil industry. Uh, when you get on a plane, you'll be wearing your uniform and uh, uh, the flight attendant will announce that please let the oil chemical workers off first like they do first responders in the military. So he t- described what it would be like for them. And if you're one of those people, can you imagine the effect that would have on you? Mm. Then he described how they would work, how they would work together. And then at the very end, he said, now I want to tell you about me and how I see me in that future. And he said, I see a very different, uh, and his name's Marcel. I see a very different Marcel. And he went on to describe how he's going to be very different. And uh, there were three major behavior changes he was going to make. And he declared those and said, I want every one of you to call me on this, what I'm inconsistent with it. And, and that was the beginning of a three-day summit that, that he, uh, he uh, led for three days. And I described the entire, the entire summit through several chapters in my book. Mm. That's awesome. Wow. Talk about, you know, if we talk about, you know, the kind of the purpose of leadership when we work with teams. The first one is, you know, casting vision. And what a powerful way to cast a vision, both for the organization and for yourself, right? And then we have to help people, you know, serve them. So that they can actually, you know, move toward that vision, both organizationally, but I would be willing to guess that as Marcel shared this about himself and was that vulnerable, um, that probably led to him having conversations with his core team, unlike any other conversations he'd had in the past. Is that, is that true? Yes. The, I actually have a process called performance transformation that's part of what we're talking about here where the leader leads the entire organization through it's about an 18-month process but yes um i went out after that break and just was walking around listening most of the people in the room sort of knew who i was but uh didn't know me very well but i heard them say like things like i would walk over hot coals for that man and so already he was starting to enroll in this summit. The way I describe it is like a popcorn popper. And you're putting people in a psychological conversation where they're being uh, emotionally led up to a line and deciding, am I in 100 uh, percent? That's what I describe commitment. Commitment is a is a. Um, conscious choice to eliminate any choice, but going for, for forward. Are they willing to do that? And that's what he did. He, he led them up to that line and said, okay, now I need to know who's in with me. And I describe in the book process he used for doing that. And many members of his team were saying no one would uh, come forth. Uh, 
that uh, we they actually had a pool uh, and uh, who would be first if someone went forth, but they were predicting no one would come forth. Within about 15 seconds, there were 29 people in line ready to call a session and, and get to work on this. So. Wow. And they actually had a pool betting that people weren't going to follow Marcel in this this vision? As well, what, what I tried to do to get them off of that, no one's going to stand up. I say, I, I know they won't, but if someone does, who would be the first? Who would be the second? So we, it's like a baby pool, you know, who will be the first? I actually had a woman named Suzanne. She ended up being the third. But it was my way of trying to get them unstuck from, you're crazy, Court. This will never happen. They're never going to be. We don't do this in this company. The last thing you do is stick your head up. It gets chopped off. Yeah, well, we're not working in that company anymore. We're working in the company Marcel has described. And in that world, people do stand up. And um, his leadership team was one of the toughest challenges he had. Ultimately, he had to uh, uh, spend a lot of time with them. But they came around, and ultimately, they delivered for 18 months every well on budget on time the first time. Never been done in the history of the Gulf for a year, and they did it for 18 months. In, in, wow. Is that what you describe as being a heretic, Court? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, no, well, for me, a heretic is someone who's who has uh, the ability to envision a, a, a new future. I'll give you another example. Uh, while working in this uh, in, in this company, a young man came in and, and knocked on my door and he said, I understand you're a coach. And I said, sure, you come on in and. He sat down and he said, our business unit is, they're probably going to be closing it down, but I know how to save it. I, I know what we need to do. I have the answer, but no one will listen to me. My boss has told me to shut up and never bring it up again. Mm. And he I think said, a lot Would of you people be willing? have experienced that, haven't they? Yes. And, and, um, so I did some testing that I do to make sure he's willing to be coached and whether he's willing to stick with it. And he read my book. And but ultimately, uh, he uh, is now jumped about four levels uh, way above the people who are telling him to shut up. And he's leading this major initiative in this company uh, because of his idea. Uh, but it was his willingness to to basically go above his boss and above his boss's boss and walk into the the VP's office and said and say I have the answer to our problem if someone's willing to listen when he I encouraged him to approach him and ask him to mentor you and this VP started mentoring him and the the rest is history mm. so that's what heretics are they're typically not your best performers, the ones you think of that you would typically go to for your ideas and problem solving. They're on the edges. They're typically new to the organization, so they don't have a lot at stake in having a new idea. They can see it with a different set of eyes. You know, most organizations will listen to you once you think and speak like we do. Mm -hmm. That's when they're most valuable. And, and just like all leaders, they're able to visit the future. And that's what this young man could do. He could see how this business is going to be run in the future. And he uh, was clever enough to, and talented enough uh, to ultimately articulate it. I had him write a white paper on it and, and had him present that to the VP. And, but you have to have courage you, to be a heretic. You don't have it. He had zero evidence that he was correct. As I mm. told him, that VP, you're not going to go any evidence. You're not going to walk in that room with any evidence or data that says you're correct. All you're going to walk in is what's sitting in your chair right now. That's the only tool you have. Let's talk about how you're going to utilize that tool and help this gentleman realize and have faith that you have the answer. And he won't have any evidence either. So it's more who you're being in that moment than what you're going to say or any data you need. He's going to look and say, can I trust my business unit to this young man? You know, we, well, I go ahead, Sandra. Well, I was just going to say, you, you know, what I love about your story, Court, is that you're just so humble and, you know, you take all of your learning and all of your experience and you just 
poured into these other people that you're coaching. And I know there's going to be lots of people who want to get, you know, in touch with you after hearing this because you're one of the most authentic, humble coaches we've ever, ever interviewed. Don't you think, John? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, and so, you know, his website is courtdial, C-O-R-T-D-I-A-L.com. The book um, that I, you can tell I'm just a huge fan of because I keep talking about it. Uh, but the book is, is called Heretics to Heroes, a memoir on modern leadership. And, you know, Court, I would love if you if you could leave us with one more story. Um, I, well, I don't know. What do you think? You think about the desert story, maybe? Well, I, yeah, I, I think I'll build on the story I just told. I talked about who that young man was being in that moment. That's a difficult concept for many people to get. So when I sit down with a leader, for example, this uh, gentleman in the oil company, he was being called up to the board. And he had, you know, about 89 PowerPoint slides and all this information. And I said, look, um, I want you to answer this question and think a long time about this question. Not who, what you're going to do or what you're going to say, but who are you going to be when you're in front of that board mm-hmm. next week? And think about that overnight and we'll talk tomorrow. We got together and he said, I don't understand the question. Mm. And so I told him this story. Uh, We had a project in the Middle East where they were planning on, this was actually written into the plan, they were planning on killing a few people and disabling and hurting over 100. That was expected. And we took a stand, me and the, the folks I was with, and invited the people to join a future where we're going to complete this thing and not harm anyone. And I don't mean no, no, Disabling, I mean, nobody gets hurt like your kid doesn't get hurt. Uh, no scrapes or sprains or anything. And that was about an eight hour, six, six to eight hour conversation, a lot of arguing. But ultimately, they committed to that. Well, about halfway through the project, we'd worked eight million man hours and hadn't had a single person leave the site for uh, any medical attention. Um, they had a sister project mirror image that had already killed a couple and disabled a number of them. So they sent a team to try to figure out how we were pulling off this miracle. And as most auditors do, they look at things. They look at the systems and procedures and equipment. They talked to some people, but when they came, when they were done with their audit, they got in front of a, a room full of the supervisors and management and said, we can't figure it out. You have the same procedures, you have the same equipment, same suppliers. Yeah, people seem to be happier here, but that doesn't explain it. We we can't explain it. None of nothing's different. And one of the supervisors named Saber Khan stood up and Saber said, uh, my friend, and he was a Jordanian, my friend, you're you're looking in the wrong place. You're correct. None of that's different. And the audit team leader said, Well, well what's different? What sh- where should we be looking? And he said, at me, at, at us. And he pointed to all the other supervisors around him. He said, well, what's different about you? And he said, you know, I'm a great constructor. I can build anything. I've been a constructor for 40 years. I'm a great supervisor. I've been a supervisor for 35 years. But on this project, I'm much more than a constructor. I am much more than a supervisor. On this project, I'm a father. Mm. And that sort of moved the whole room. And the, the audit team leaders sat there looking at him. He has a system of intellect, which most people in business have. And he's looking, and you can see his brain trying to figure out what this man just said to them. And you can see the light come on, and he says, I think I'm starting to figure out um, how you're pulling this off. And so I would say the most useful contribution I made to that project was helping their supervisors uh, shift from being a supervisor to being a father because you do not allow your sons to get hurt. They're mm-hmm. thous. They're thous. You will do everything you have in your power to take care of them and look out for them and care for them. Wow, I love that. And, and every leader, no matter what their role is, can make that shift from being 
a manager, you know, a VP or whatever your title is to being a parent and looking at your team as though they are family. They are, they are from you, as you said. So, wow. That's incredible. And you can always, and I don't go around through my life every moment saying, who do I need to be in this moment? But when it's a critical moment, I definitely spend time answering that question. Who do I want to be in this moment to be my most effective? Wow, what a what a great way to to kind of wrap up and love for people out there to just consider that question right there. And, you know, maybe to, you know, take court's advice and sit down and and write that out. Write out your movie script for that blissful day. Write out that, you know, go visit yourself in the future. And who is that person that you want to be and how you want to show up and that role that you want to play in the lives of everybody around you. Um, because I think getting that clarity is just the first step on, you know, on how to move into that, isn't it? It's the difference between drifting through life and uh, living an intentional life. And if, if you want to understand the difference between drifting and being intentional, watch the movie Forrest Gump. Mm. <laughs> it's been yeah. a while since I've watched that, but you are, that's, you're right. He's the only, him and his mother are the only two intentional people in the movie, and they have a huge, make a huge contribution to all these other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it was, this is a difference one human being can make if he or she's living an intentional life. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Court. And uh, is there another, is the best way for people to get in touch with you through your website, or is there other ways for people to get in touch with you? That's the best way. Okay. And uh, I encourage people to check out my blog. I write a lot about these things. I post every week, and I put a lot of uh, effort into my posts. Yeah. Yes, your posts are wonderful. And, you know, I encourage people to go follow you on LinkedIn because you have some wonderful, wonderful content there that you're posting. It looks like weekly and just really thought provoking, deep, but at the same time, humbling and real um, ideas that, that really make people go, oh, hmm, you know, and think about things. And that's your intentionality that you're talking about. And I'm just so glad that I had the opportunity to meet you. Just really wonderful book court and your philosophy. And, you know, you've been all over the world. You've worked with some of the largest corporations in the world. Um, but you are, you've stayed true to yourself and you've always remembered Harry. And I think that's incredible. Well, thank you, Sandra and John. I really enjoyed the, the chat. Yes, me too, and I look forward to. Uh, love to have you back on down the road, Court. Know that you always, uh, you're always welcome to come on the the Eternal Leadership Podcast and and just to have another conversation with us. I would really yeah. enjoy that. Yeah, anytime. Just just ping me, and I'll be I'll be there. All right. Have a wonderful day, and just keep knocking people alive out there, which you are doing uh, in an amazing fashion. Thank you. You have a good day too. 